Hey, everybody, and welcome to this week's episode of the Weird Tales Podcast. My name is Tycho Alhambra. Thank you for listening. If this is your first episode, welcome. We're happy to have you here, regardless of your race, sexual orientation, or gender identity. The Weird Tales Podcast stands in solidarity with you all. Transcripts of the show are available. The link is in the show notes. So, here we are again. Recording at my wife's computer with my Blue Yeti mic, not the fancy schmancy XLR mic I've been using because my computer decided it didn't want to run an LCD screen anymore and killed it. So, it's back in the shop getting a new screen, and at this point I've basically got the computer of Theseus as my DAW. Different components, different shell, different screen, but it takes up the same space. Fortunately, you lovely, wonderful patrons of mine who help support the show are helping to offset that cost, and we are opening scene from upping the rest of it, so it's not going to hurt us too badly. I had a little bit of a mental health crisis for a couple days because I didn't like the fact that me and my stupid decisions end up costing us money, and that's extra stress on my wife, but here we are. If you want to help support the show, offset the cost of computer repair, and keep my wife from going into an anxiety spiral, you can join my Patreon. Any amount is appreciated, and I am grateful for all the support I receive. We are very swiftly coming up on Pride Month. I've got my readers all selected, they've got their assignments, and with any luck, I'll be able to get it all up and out to you on time. So, in four weeks' time, you will receive a month-long break from my irritating voice. And that's enough of that. Let's get on with the story. The Dream Quest of Unknown Kadath by H.P. Lovecraft Three times Randolph Carter dreamed of the marvelous city, and three times was he snatched away while he still paused on the high terrace above it. All golden and lovely it blazed in the sunset, with walls, temples, colonnades, and arched bridges of veined marble, silver basin fountains of prismatic spray in broad squares and perfumed gardens, and wide streets marching between delicate trees and blossom-laden urns and ivory statues in gleaming rows while on steep northward slopes climbed tiers of red roofs and old peaked gables, harboring little lanes of grassy cobbles. It was a fever of the gods, a fanfare of supernal trumpets and a clash of immortal symbols. Mystery hung about it as clouds about a fabulous, unvisited mountain, and as Carter stood breathless and expectant on that balustrated parapet, there swept up to him the poignancy and suspense of almost vanished memory, the pain of lost things, and the maddening need to place again what once had an awesome and momentous place. He knew that for him its meaning must once have been supreme, though in what cycle or incarnation he had known it, or whether in dream or in waking, he could not tell. Vaguely it called up glimpses of a far-forgotten first youth, when wonder and pleasure lay in all the mystery of days, and dawn and dusk alike strode forth prophetic to the eager sound of lutes and song, unclosing fairy gates towards further and surprising marvels. But each night as he stood on that high marble terrace with the curious urns and carven rail, and looked off over that hushed sunset city of beauty and unearthly imminence, he felt the bondage of dreams' tyrannous gods, for in no wise could he leave that lofty spot, or descend the wide marmorial flights flung endlessly down to where those streets of elder witchery lay outspread and beckoning. When, for the third time, he awaked with those flights still undescended and those hushed sunset streets still untraversed, 
he prayed long and earnestly to the hidden gods of dream that brood capricious above the clouds on unknown Kadath in the cold waste where no man treads. But the gods made no answer and showed no relenting, nor did they give any favoring sign when he prayed to them in dream and invoked them sacrificially through the bearded priests Nasht and Common Thaw, whose cavern temple with its pillar of flame lies not far from the gates of the waking world. It seemed, however, that his prayers must have been adversely heard, for after even the first of them he ceased wholly to behold the marvelous city, as if his three glimpses from afar had been more accidents or oversights, and against some hidden plan or wish of the gods. At length, Sick with longing for those glittering sunset streets and cryptical hill lanes among ancient tiled roofs, nor able sleeping or waking to drive them from his mind, Carter resolved to go with bold entreaty whither no man had gone before, and dare the icy deserts through the dark, to where unknown Kadath, veiled in cloud and crowned with unimagined stars, holds secret and nocturnal the onyx castle of the Great Ones. In light slumber, he descended the seventy steps to the cavern of flame and talked of this design to the bearded priests Nasht and Common Thaw, and the priests shook their shent-bearing heads and vowed it would be the death of his soul. They pointed out that the great ones had shown already their wish and that it is not agreeable to them to be harassed by insistent pleas. They reminded him, too, that not only had no man ever been to unknown Kadath, but no man had ever suspected in what part of space it may lie, whether it be in the dreamlands around our world or in those surrounding some unguessed companion of Fomalot or Aldebaran. If in our dreamland, it might conceivably be reached, but only three fully human souls since time began had ever crossed and recrossed the black impious gulfs to other dreamlands. And of that three, two had come back quite mad. There were, in such voyages, incalculable local dangers, as well as that shocking final peril which gibbers unmentionably outside the ordered universe where no dreams reach. That last amorphous blight of nethermost confusion, which blasphemes and bubbles at the center of all infinity. The boundless demon sultan Azathoth, whose name no lips dare speak aloud, and who gnaws hungrily in inconceivable, unlighted chambers beyond time amidst the muffled, maddening beating of vile drums and the thin, monotonous whine of accursed flutes, to which detestable pounding and piping dance slowly, awkwardly, and absurdly the gigantic ultimate gods, the blind, voiceless, tenebrous, mindless other gods whose soul and messenger is the crawling chaos Nyarlathotep. Of these things was Carter warned by the priests Nasht and Common Thaw in the Cavern of Flame, but still he resolved to find the gods on unknown Kadath in the cold waste, wherever that might be, and to win from them the sight and remembrance and shelter of the marvelous Sunset City. He knew that his journey would be strange and long, and that the Great Ones would be against it, but being old in the land of dream, he counted on many useful memories and devices to aid him. So, asking a farewell blessing of the priests, and thinking shrewdly on his course, he boldly descended the seven hundred steps to the gate of deeper slumber, and set out through the enchanted wood.
in the tunnels of that twisted wood, whose low, prodigious oaks twine groping boughs and shine dim with the phosphorescence of strange fungi, dwell the furtive and secretive Zoogs, who know many obscure secrets of the dream world and a few of the waking world, since the wood at two places touches the lands of men, though it would be disastrous to say where. Certain unexplained rumors, events, and vanishments occur among men where the Zoogs have access, and it is well that they cannot travel far outside the world of dream. But over the nearer parts of the dream world they pass freely, flitting small and brown and unseen, and bearing back piquant tales to beguile the hours around their hearths in the forests they love. Most of them live in burrows, but some inhabit the trunks of the great trees, and although they live mostly on fungi, it is muttered that they have also a slight taste for meat, either physical or spiritual, for certainly many dreamers have entered that wood who have not come out. Carter, however, had no fear, for he was an old dreamer and had learnt their fluttering language and made many a treaty with them, having found through their help the splendid city of Salafaeus in Uth-Nargai beyond the Tenarian hills, where reigns half the year the great King Kuranis, a man he had known by another name in life. Kuranis was the one soul who had been to the star gulfs and returned free from madness. Threading now the low phosphorescent aisles between those gigantic trunks, Carter made fluttering sounds in the manner of the Zoogs, and listened now and then for responses. He remembered one particular village of the creatures near the center of the wood, where a circle of great mossy stones in what was once a clearing tells of older and more terrible dwellers long forgotten, and toward this spot he hastened. He traced his way by the grotesque fungi, which always seem better nourished as one approaches the dread circle where elder beings danced and sacrificed. Finally, the greater light of those thicker fungi revealed a sinister green and gray vastness, pushing up through the roof of the forest and out of sight. This was the nearest of the great ring of stones, and Carter knew he was close to the Zug village. Renewing his fluttering sound, he waited patiently and was at length rewarded by an impression of many eyes watching him. It was the Zoogs, for one sees their weird eyes long before one can discern their small, slippery brown outlines. Out they swarmed from hidden burrow and honeycomb tree till the whole dim-litten region was alive with them. Some of the wilder ones brushed Carter unpleasantly, and one even nipped loathsomely at his ear, but these lawless spirits were soon restrained by their elders. The Council of Sages, recognizing the visitor, offered a gourd of fermented sap from a haunted tree unlike the others, which had grown from a seed dropped down by someone on the moon, and as Carter drank it ceremoniously, a very strange colloquy began. The Zoogs did not, unfortunately, know where the peak of Kadath lies, nor could they even say whether the cold waste is in our dream world or in another. Rumors of the Great Ones came equally from all points, and one might only say that they were likelier to be seen on high mountain peaks than in valleys, since on such peaks they dance reminiscently when the moon is above and the clouds beneath. Then one very ancient Zug recalled a thing unheard of by the others, and said that in Althar, beyond the river sky, there still lingered the last copy of those inconceivably old Nicotic manuscripts, made by waking men in forgotten boreal kingdoms, and born into the land of dreams where the hairy cannibal Nafkas 
overcame many templed Olathoe and slew all the heroes of the land of Lomar. Those manuscripts, he said, told much of the gods, and besides, in Ulthar there were men who had seen the signs of the gods, and even one old priest who had scaled a great mountain to behold them dancing by moonlight. He had failed, though his companion had succeeded and perished namelessly. So Randolph Carter thanked the Zugs, who fluttered amicably and gave him another gourd of moon-tree wine to take with him, and set out through the phosphorescent wood for the other side, where the rushing sky flows down from the slopes of Larion, and Hatheg and Nier and Ulthar dot the plain. Behind him, furtive and unseen, crept several of the curious Zugs, for they wished to learn what might befall him and bear back the legend to their people. The vast oaks grew thicker as he pushed on beyond the village, and he looked sharply for a certain spot where they would thin somewhat, standing quite dead or dying among the unnaturally dense fungi and the rotting mold and mushy logs of their fallen brothers. There he would turn sharply aside, for at that spot a mighty slab of stone rests on the forest floor, and those who have dared approach it say that it bears an iron ring three feet wide. Remembering the archaic circle of great mossy rocks and what it was possibly set up for, the Zugs do not pause near that expansive slab with its huge ring, for they realize that all which is forgotten need not necessarily be dead, and they would not like to see the slab rise slowly and deliberately. Carter detoured at the proper place and heard behind him the frightened fluttering of some of the more timid Zugs. He had known they would follow him, so he was not disturbed, for one grows accustomed to the anomalies of these prying creatures. It was twilight when he came to the edge of the wood, and the strengthening glow told him it was the twilight of morning. Over fertile plains rolling down to the river sky, he saw the smoke of cottage chimneys, and on every hand were the hedges and ploughed fields and thatched roofs of a peaceful land. Once he stopped at a farmhouse well for a cup of water, and all the dogs barked affrightedly at the inconspicuous zoogs that crept through the grass behind. At another house, where people were stirring, he asked questions about the gods and whether they danced often upon Larion, but the farmer and his wife would only make the elder sign and tell him the way to Nier and Ulthar. At noon he walked through the one broad high street of Nier, which he had once visited and which marked his farthest former travels in this direction, and soon afterward he came to the great stone bridge across the sky, into whose central pier the masons had sealed a living human sacrifice when they built it thirteen hundred years before. Once on the other side, the frequent presence of cats, who all arched their backs at the trailing zoogs, revealed the near neighborhood of Ulthar. For in Ulthar, according to an ancient and significant law, no man may kill a cat. Very pleasant were the suburbs of Ulthar with their little green cottages and neatly fenced farms, and still pleasanter was the quaint town itself, with its old peaked roofs and overhanging upper stories and numberless chimney pots and narrow hill streets where one can see old cobbles whenever the graceful cats afford space enough. Carter, the cats being somewhat dispersed by the half-seen zoogs, picked his way directly to the modest temple of the Elder Ones, where the priests and old records were said to be, and once within that venerable circular tower of ivied stone 
which crowns Althar's highest hill, he sought out the patriarch Atal, who had been up the forbidden peak Hatheg Claw in the stony desert and had come down again alive. Atal, seated on an ivory dais in a festooned shrine at the top of the temple, was fully three centuries old, but still very keen of mind and memory. From him, Carter learned many things about the gods, but mainly that they are indeed only Earth's gods, ruling feebly our own dreamland and having no power or habitation elsewhere. They might, Atal said, heed a man's prayer if in good humor, but one must not think of climbing to their onyx stronghold atop Kadath in the cold waste. It was lucky that no man knew where Kadath towers, for the fruits of ascending it would be very grave. Atal's companion Barzai the Wise had been drawn screaming into the sky for climbing merely the known peak of Hatheg Claw. With unknown Kadath, if ever found, matters would be much worse. For although Earth's gods may sometimes be surpassed by a wise mortal, they are protected by the other gods from outside, whom it is better not to discuss. At least twice in the world's history, the other gods set their seal upon Earth's primal granite. Once in antediluvian times, as guessed from a drawing in those parts of the Nicotic manuscripts too ancient to be read, and once on Hatheg Claw, when Barzai the Wise tried to see Earth's gods dancing by moonlight. So, Atal said, it would be much better to let all gods alone, except in tactful prayers. Carter, though disappointed by Atal's discouraging advice and by the meager help to be found in the Nicotic manuscripts and the seven cryptical books of Hassan, did not wholly despair. First, he questioned the old priest about that marvelous sunset city seen from the railed terrace, thinking that perhaps he might find it without the god's aid, but Atal could tell him nothing. Probably, Atal said, the place belonged to his especial dream world and not to the general land of vision that many know, and conceivably it might be on another planet. In that case, Earth's gods could not guide him if they would, but this was not likely since the stopping of the dream showed pretty clearly that it was something the Great Ones wished to hide from him. Then, Carter did a wicked thing, offering his guileless host so many drafts of the moon wine which the Zugs had given him that the old man became irresponsibly talkative. Robbed of his reserve, poor Atal babbled freely of forbidden things, telling of a great image reported by travelers as carved on the solid rock of the mountain in Granic, on the Isle of Oriab in the Southern Sea, and hinting that it may be a likeness which Earth's gods once wrought of their own features in the days when they danced by moonlight on that mountain. And he hiccuped likewise that the features of that image are very strange, so that one might easily recognize them, and that they are sure signs of the authentic race of the gods. Now the use of all this in finding the gods became at once apparent to Carter. It is known that in disguise the younger among the Great Ones often espoused the daughters of men, so that around the borders of the cold waste wherein stands Kadath, the peasants must all bear their blood. This being so, the way to find that waste must be to see the stoned face on Ingranic and mark the features. Then, having noted them with care, to search for such features among living men. Where they are plainest and thickest, there must the gods dwell nearest, and whatever stony waste lies back of the villages in that place 
must be that wherein stands Kadath. Much of the great ones might be learnt in such regions, and those with their blood might inherit little memories very useful to a seeker. They might not know their parentage, for the gods so dislike to be known among men that none can be found to have seen their faces wittingly, a thing which Carter realized even as he sought to scale Kadath. But they would have queer, lofty thoughts misunderstood by their fellows, and would sing of far places and gardens so unlike any known even in dreamland that common folk would call them fools. And from all this one could perhaps learn old secrets of Kadath, or gain hints of the marvelous sunset city which the gods held secret, and more, one might, in certain cases, seize some well-loved child of a god as hostage, or even capture some young god himself, disguised and dwelling amongst men with a comely peasant maiden as his bride. Atal, however, did not know how to find Ingranic on its isle of Oriab, and recommended that Carter follow the singing sky under its bridges down to the southern sea, where no Burgess of Althar has ever been. But whence the merchants come in boats or with long caverns of mules and two-wheeled carts. There is a great city there, Dilathleen, but in Althar its reputation is bad because of the black three-banked galleys that sail to it with rubies from no clearly named shore. The traders that come from those galleys to deal with the jewelers are human, or nearly so, but the rowers are never beheld, and it is not thought wholesome in Althar that merchants should trade with black ships from unknown places whose rowers cannot be exhibited. By the time he had given this information, Atal was very drowsy, and Carter laid him gently on a couch of inlaid ebony and gathered his long beard decorously on his chest. As he turned to go, he observed that no suppressed fluttering followed him, and wondered why the Zoogs had become so lax in their curious pursuit. Then he noticed all the sleek, complacent cats of Ulthar licking their chops with unusual gusto, and recalled the spitting and caterwauling he had faintly heard in lower parts of the temple while absorbed in the old priest's conversation. He recalled, too, the evilly hungry way in which an especially impudent young Zoog had regarded a small black kitten in the cobbled street outside, and because he loved nothing on earth more than small black kittens, he stooped and petted the sleek cats of Althar as they licked their chops, and did not mourn because those inquisitive zoogs would escort him no farther. It was sunset now, so Carter stopped at an ancient inn on a steep little street overlooking the lower town, and as he went out on the balcony of his room and gazed down at the sea of red-tiled roofs and cobbled ways and the pleasant fields beyond, all mellow and magical in the slanted light, he swore that Althar would be a very likely place to dwell in always, were not the memory of a greater sunset city ever goading one on toward unknown perils. Then twilight fell, and the pink walls of the plastered gables turned violet and mystic, and little yellow lights floated up one by one from old lattice windows, and sweet bells pealed in the temple tower above, and the first star winked softly above the meadows across the sky. With the night came song, and Carter nodded as the lutenists praised ancient days from beyond the filigreed balconies and tessellated courts of simple Ulthar. And there might have been sweetness even in the voices of Ulthar's many cats, but that they were mostly heavy and silent from strange feasting. Some of them stole off to those cryptical realms which are known only to cats 
and which villagers say are on the moon's dark side, whither the cats leap from tall housetops. But one small black kitten crept upstairs and sprang in Carter's lap to purr and play, and curled up near his feet when he lay down at last on the little couch, whose pillows were stuffed with fragrant drowsy herbs. In the morning, Carter joined a caravan of merchants bound for Dilath Lean, with the spun wool of Ulthar and the cabbages of Ulthar's busy farms, and for six days they rode with tinkling bells on the smooth road beside the sky, stopping some nights at the inns of little quaint fishing towns, and on other nights camping under the stars while snatches of boatmen's songs came from the placid river. The country was very beautiful, with green hedges and groves and picturesque peaked cottages and octagonal windmills. On the seventh day, a blur of smoke arose on the horizon ahead, and then the tall black towers of Dilath Lean, which is built mostly of basalt. Dilath Lean, with its thin angular towers, looks in the distance like a bit of the giant's causeway, and its streets are dark and uninviting. There are many dismal sea taverns near the myriad wharves, and all the town is thronged with the strange seamen of every land on earth and of a few which are said to be not on earth. Carter questioned the oddly-robed men of that city about the peak of Ingranic on the Isle of Oriab, and found that they knew of it well. Ships came from Baharna on that island, one being due to return thither in only a month, and Ingranic is but two days' zebra ride from that port. But few had seen the stone face of the god, because it is on a very difficult side of Ingranic, which overlooks only sheer crags in a valley of sinister lava. Once the gods were angered with men on that side and spoke of the matter to the other gods. It was hard to get this information from the traders and sailors in Dilathlene's sea taverns because they mostly preferred to whisper of the black galleys. One of them was due in a week with rubies from its unknown shore and the townsfolk dreaded to see it dock. The mouths of the men who came from it to trade were too wide and the way their turbans were humped up in two points above their foreheads was in especially bad taste, and their shoes were the shortest and queerest ever seen in the Six Kingdoms. But worst of all was the matter of the unseen rowers. Those three banks of oars moved too briskly and accurately and vigorously to be comfortable, and it was not right for a ship to stay in port for weeks while the merchants traded yet to give no glimpse of its crew. It was not fair to the tavern-keepers of Dilathlene, or to the grocers and butchers either, for not a scrap of provisions was ever sent aboard. The merchants took only gold and stout black slaves from Parg across the river. That was all they ever took, those unpleasantly featured merchants and their unseen rowers. Never anything from the butchers and grocers, but only gold and the fat black men of Parg whom they bought by the pound and the odors from those galleys which the south wind blew in from the wharves are not to be described. Only by constantly smoking strong thagweed could even the hardest denizen of the old sea taverns bear them. Dilathlene would never have tolerated the black galleys had such rubies been obtainable elsewhere, but no mine in all Earth's dreamland was known to produce their like. Of these things, Dilathlene's cosmopolitan folk chiefly gossiped, whilst Carter waited patiently for the ship from Baharna, which might bear him to the isle whereon carven the granite towers, lofty and barren. 
Meanwhile, he did not fail to seek through the haunts of far travelers for any tales they might have concerning Kadath and the cold waste, or a marvelous city of marble walls and silver fountains seen below terraces in the sunset. Of these things, however, he learned nothing. Though he once thought that a certain old slant-eyed merchant looked queerly intelligent when the cold waste was spoken of, this man was reputed to trade with the horrible stone villages on the icy desert plateau of Lang, which no healthy folk visit, and whose evil fires are seen at night from afar. He was even rumored to have dwelt with that high priest not to be described, which wears a yellow silken mask over its face and dwells all alone in a prehistoric stone monastery. That such a person might well have had nibbling traffic with such beings as may conceivably dwell in the cold waste was not to be doubted, but Carter soon found that it was no use questioning him. Then the black galley slipped into the harbor past the basalt mole and the tall lighthouse, silent and alien, and with a strange stench that the south wind drove into the town. Uneasiness rustled through the taverns along that waterfront, and after a while the dark, wide-mouthed merchants with humped turbans and short feet clumped stealthily ashore to seek the bazaars of the jewelers. Carter observed them closely and disliked them more the longer he looked at them. Then he saw them drive the stout black men of Parg up the gangplank, grunting and sweating into that singular galley, and wondered in what lands, or if in any lands at all, those fat, pathetic creatures might be destined to serve. And on the third evening of that galley's stay, one of the uncomfortable merchants spoke to him, smirking sinfully and hinting of what he had heard in the taverns of Carter's quest. He appeared to have knowledge too secret for public telling, and though the sound of his voice was unbearably hateful, Carter felt that the lore of so far a traveler must not be overlooked. He bade him therefore be his own guest in locked chambers above, and drew out the last of the Zug's moonwine to loosen his tongue. The strange merchant drank heavily, but smirked unchanged by the draught. Then he drew forth a curious bottle with wine of his own, and Carter saw that the bottle was a single hollowed ruby, grotesquely carved in patterns too fabulous to be comprehended. He offered his wine to his host, and though Carter took only the least sip, he felt the dizziness of space and the fever of unimagined jungles. All the while the guest had been smiling more and more broadly, and as Carter slipped into blankness, the last thing he saw was that dark, odious face convulsed with evil laughter and something quite unspeakable where one of the two frontal puffs of that orange turban had become disarranged with the shakings of that epileptic mirth. Carter next had consciousness amidst horrible odors beneath a tent-like awning on the deck of a ship, with the marvelous coasts of the southern sea flying by in unnatural swiftness. He was not chained, but three of the dark, sardonic merchants stood grinning nearby, and the sight of those humps in their turbans made him almost as faint as did the stench that filtered up through the sinister hatches. He saw slip past him the glorious lands and cities of which a fellow dreamer of earth, a lighthouse keeper in ancient Kingsport, had often discoursed in the old days, and recognized the templed terraces of Tsar, abode of forgotten dreams, the spires of infamous Thalerion, that demon city of a thousand wonders where the Eidolon Lothi reigns, the charnel gardens of Zura, land of pleasures unattained, 
and the twin headlands of crystal meeting above in a resplendent arch which guard the harbor of Sona Nil, blessed land of fancy. Past all of these gorgeous lands, the malodorous ship flew unwholesomely, urged by the abnormal strokes of those unseen rowers below. And before the day was done, Carter saw that the steersman could have no other goal than the basalt pillars of the west, beyond which simple folks say splendid Cathuria lies, but which wise dreamers well know are the gates of a monstrous cataract wherein the oceans of Earth's dreamland drop wholly to abysmal nothingness and shoot through the empty spaces toward other worlds and other stars and the awful voids outside the ordered universe where the demon sultan Azathoth gnaws hungrily in chaos amid pounding and piping and the hellish dancing of the other gods, blind, voiceless, tenebrous, and mindless, with their soul and messenger, Nyarlathotep. Meanwhile, the three sardonic merchants would give no word of their intent, though Carter well knew that they must be leagued with those who wished to hold him from his quest. It is understood in the land of dream that the other gods have many agents moving among men, and all these agents, whether wholly human or slightly less than human, are eager to work the will of those blind and mindless things in return for the favor of their hideous soul and messenger, the crawling chaos Nyarlathotep. So Carter inferred that the merchants of the humped turbans, hearing of his daring search for the great ones in their castle on Kadath, had decided to take him away and, and deliver him to Nyarlathotep for whatever nameless bounty might be offered for such a prize. What might be the land of those merchants in our known universe or in the eldritch spaces outside, Carter could not guess, nor could he imagine at what hellish trysting place they would meet the crawling chaos to give him up and claim their reward. He knew, however, that no beings as nearly human as these would dare approach the ultimate knighted throne of the demon Azathoth in the formless central void. At the set of sun, the merchants licked their excessively wide lips and glared hungrily, and one of them went below and returned from some hidden and offensive cabin with a pot and basket of plates. Then they squatted close together beneath the awning and ate the smoking meat that was passed around. But when they gave Carter a portion, he found something very terrible in the size and shape of it, so that he turned even paler than before and cast that portion into the sea when no eye was on him. And again he thought of those unseen rowers beneath and of the suspicious nourishment from which their far too mechanical strength was derived. It was dark when the galley passed betwixt the basalt pillars of the west, and the sound of the ultimate cataract swelled portentous from ahead, and the spray of that cataract rose to obscure the stars, and the deck grew damp, and the vessel reeled in the surging current of the brink. Then with a queer whistle and plunge, the leap was taken, and Carter felt the terrors of nightmare as earth fell away, and the great boat shot silent and comet-like into planetary space. Never before had he known what shapeless black things lurk and caper and flounder all through the aether, leering and grinning at such voyagers as may pass, and sometimes feeling about with slimy paws when some moving object excites their curiosity. These are the nameless larvae of the other gods, and like them are blind and without mind, and possessed of singular hungers and thirsts. 
but that offensive gallery did not aim as far as Carter had feared, for he soon saw that the helmsman was steering a course directly for the moon. The moon was a crescent shining larger and larger as they approached it and showing its singular craters and peaks uncomfortably. The ship made for the edge, and it soon became clear that its destination was that secret and mysterious side which is always turned away from the earth, and in which no fully human person, save perhaps the dreamer Sneereth Co., has ever beheld. The close aspect of the moon, as the galley drew near, proved very disturbing to Carter, and he did not like the size and shape of the ruins which crumbled here and there. The dead temples on the mountains were so placed that they could have glorified no wholesome or suitable gods, and in the symmetries of the broken columns there seemed to lurk some dark and inner meaning which did not invite solution. And what the structure and proportions of the olden worshippers could have been, Carter steadily refused to conjecture. When the ship rounded the edge and sailed over those lands unseen by men, there appeared in the queer landscape certain signs of life, and Carter saw many low, broad, round cottages in fields of grotesque whitish fungi. He noticed that these cottages had no windows and thought that their shape suggested the huts of Eskimo. Then he glimpsed the oily waves of a sluggish sea and knew that the voyage was once more to be by water, or at least through some liquid. The gallery struck the surface with a peculiar sound, and the odd elastic way the waves received it was very perplexing to Carter. They now slid along at great speed, once passing and hailing another galley of kindred form, but generally seeing nothing but that curious sea and a sky that was black and star-strewn, even though the sun shone scorchingly in it. There presently rose ahead the jagged hills of a leprous-looking coast, and Carter saw the thick, unpleasant gray towers of a city. The way they leaned and bent, the manner in which they were clustered and the fact that they had no windows at all was very disturbing to the prisoner, and he bitterly mourned the folly which had made him sip the curious wine of that merchant with the humped turban. As the coast drew nearer and the hideous stench of that city grew stronger, he saw upon the jagged hills many forests, some of whose trees he recognized as akin to that solitary moon tree in the enchanted wood of earth, from whose sap the small brown zoogs ferment their peculiar wine. Carter could now distinguish moving figures on the noisome wharves ahead, and the better he saw them, the worse he began to fear and detest them. For they were not men at all, or even approximately men, but great grayish-white slippery things which could expand and contract at will, and whose principal shape, though it often changed, was that of a sort of toad without any eyes, but with a curiously vibrating mass of short pink tentacles on the end of its blunt, vague snout. These objects were waddling busily about the wharves, moving bales and crates and boxes with preternatural strength, and now and then hopping on or off some anchored galley with long oars in their forepaws, and now and then one would appear driving a herd of clumping slaves which, indeed, were approximate human beings with wide mouths like those merchants who traded in Dilathleen. Only these herds, being without turbans or shoes or clothing, did not seem so very human after all. Some of these slaves, the fatter ones whom a sort of overseer would pinch experimentally, were unloaded from ships and nailed in crates which workers pushed into low warehouses or loaded on great lumbering vans. Once a van was hitched up and driven off, 
and the fabulous thing which drew it was such that Carter gasped, even after having seen the other monstrosities of that hateful place. Now and then a small herd of slaves, dressed and turbaned like the dark merchants, would be driven aboard a galley, followed by a great crew of the slippery gray toad things as officers, navigators, and rowers. And Carter saw that the almost human creatures were reserved for the more ignominious kinds of fetching and carrying and bargaining with men on the earth or other planets where they traded. These creatures must have been convenient on earth, for they were truly not unlike men when dressed and carefully shod and turbaned, and could haggle in the shops of men without embarrassment or curious explanations. But most of them, unless lean and ill-favored, were unclothed and packed in crates and drawn off in lumbering lorries by fabulous things. Occasionally other beings were unloaded and crated, some very like these semi-humans, some not so similar, and some not similar at all, and he wondered if any of the poor stout black men of Parg were left to be unloaded and crated and shipped inland in those obnoxious drays. When the galley landed at a greasy-looking quay of spongy rock, a nightmare horde of toad things wiggled out of the hatches, and two of them seized Carter and dragged him ashore. The smell and aspect of that city are beyond telling, and Carter held only scattered images of the tiled streets and black doorways and endless precipices of gray vertical walls without windows. At length he was dragged within a low doorway and made to climb infinite steps in pitch blackness. It was apparently all one to the toad things whether it were light or dark. The odor of the place was intolerable, and when Carter was locked into a chamber and left alone, he scarcely had strength to crawl about and ascertain its form and dimensions. It was circular and about twenty feet across. From then on, time ceased to exist. At intervals, food was pushed in, but Carter would not touch it. What his fate would be, he did not know, but he felt that he was held for the coming of that frightful soul and messenger of infinity's other gods, the crawling chaos Nyarlat Hotep. Finally, after an unguessed span of hours or days, the great stone door swung wide again, and Carter was shoved down the stairs and out into the red-litten streets of that fearsome city. It was night on the moon, and all through the town were stationed slaves bearing torches. In a detestable square, a sort of procession was formed. Ten of the toad things and twenty-four almost human torchbearers, eleven on either side and one each before and behind. Carter was placed in the middle of the line. Five toad things ahead and five behind, and one almost human torchbearer on each side of him. Certain of the toad things produced disgustingly carven flutes of ivory and made loathsome sounds. To that hellish piping the column advanced out of the tiled streets and into nighted plains of obscene fungi, soon commencing to climb one of the lower and more gradual hills that lay behind the city. That on some frightful slope or blasphemous plateau the crawling chaos waited, Carter could not doubt, and he wished that the suspense might soon be over. The whining of those impious flutes was shocking, and he would have given worlds for some even half-normal sound, but these toad things had no voices, and the slaves did not talk. Then, through that star-specked darkness, there did come a normal sound. It rolled from the higher hills and from all the jagged peaks around. 
It was caught up and echoed in a swelling pandemoniac chorus. It was the midnight yell of the cat, and Carter knew at last that the old village folk were right when they made low guesses about the cryptical realms which are known only to cats, and to which the elders among cats repair by stealth nocturnally, springing from high housetops. Verily, it is to the moon's dark side that they go to leap and gamble on the hills and converse with ancient shadows, and here, amidst that column of fetid things, Carter heard their homely, friendly cry, and thought of the steep roofs and warm hearths and little lighted windows of home. Now, much of the speech of cats was known to Randolph Carter, and in this far terrible place he uttered the cry that was suitable, but that he need not have done, for even as his lips opened, he heard the chorus wax and draw nearer, and saw swift shadows against the stars as small graceful shapes leapt from hill to hill in gathering legions. The call of the clan had been given, and before the foul procession had time even to be frightened, a cloud of smothering fur and a phalanx of murderous claws were tidily and tempestuously upon it. The flutes stopped, and there were shrieks in the night. Dying, almost humans screamed, and cats spit and yowled and roared, but the toad things made never a sound, as their stinking green ichor oozed fatally upon that porous earth with the obscene fungi. It was a stupendous sight while the torches lasted, and Carter had never before seen so many cats. Black, gray, and white, yellow, tiger, and mixed, common, Persian, and manx, Tibetan, Angora, and Egyptian, all were there in the fury of battle, and there hovered over them some trace of that profound and inviolate sanctity which made their goddess great in the temples of Bubastis. They would leap, seven strong at the throat of an almost human or the pink tentacled snout of a toad thing, and drag it down savagely to the fungus plain where myriads of their fellows would surge over it and into it with the frenzied claws and teeth of a divine battle fury. Carter had seized a torch from a stricken slave, but was soon overborne by the surging waves of his loyal defenders. Then he lay in the utter blackness, hearing the clangor of war and the shouts of the victors, and feeling the soft paws of his friends as they rushed to and fro over him in the fray. At last awe and exhaustion closed his eyes, and when he opened them again it was upon a strange scene. The great shining disk of the earth, thirteen times greater than that of the moon as we see it, had risen with floods of weird light over the lunar landscape, and across all those leagues of wild plateau and ragged crest there squatted one endless sea of cats in orderly array. Circle on circle they reached, and two or three leaders out of the ranks were licking his face and purring to him consolingly. Of the dead slaves and toad things there were not many signs, but Carter thought he saw one bone a little way off in the open space between him and the beginning of the solid circles of the warriors. Carter now spoke with the leaders in the soft language of cats and learned that his ancient friendship with the species was well known and often spoken of in the places where cats congregate. He had not been unremarked in Althar when he passed through, and the sleek old cats had remembered how he petted them after they had attended to the hungry zoogs who looked evilly at a small black kitten. And they recalled, too, how he had welcomed the very little kitten who came to see him at the inn, and how he had given it a saucer of rich cream in the morning before he left. The grandfather of that very little kitten was the leader of the army now assembled, for he had seen the evil procession from a far hill 
and recognized the prisoner as a sworn friend of his kind on earth and in the land of dream. A yowl now came from a farther peak, and the old leader paused abruptly in his conversation. It was one of the army's outposts stationed on the highest of the mountains to watch the one foe which earth cats fear, the very large and peculiar cats from Saturn, who for some reason have not been oblivious of the charm of our moon's dark side. They are leagued by treaty with the evil toad things and are notoriously hostile to our earthly cats, so that at this juncture a meeting would have been a somewhat grave matter. After a brief consultation of generals, the cats rose and assumed a closer formation, crowding protectingly around Carter and preparing to take the great leap through space back to the housetops of our Earth and its dreamland. The old field marshal advised Carter to let himself be borne along smoothly and passively in the massed ranks of furry leapers and told him how to spring when the rest sprang and land gracefully when the rest landed. He also offered to deposit him in any spot he desired, and Carter decided on the city of Dilathleen whence the black galley had set out, for he wished to sail thence for Oriab and the carven crest of Ingranic, and also to warn the people of the city to have no more traffic with black galleys, if indeed that traffic could be tactfully and judiciously broken off. Then, upon a signal, the cats all leapt gracefully with their friend packed securely in their midst, while in a black cave on a far unhallowed summit of the moon mountains still vainly waited the crawling chaos Nyarlat Hotep. And that is the end of the first part of the dream quest of Unknown Kadath. It's only going to get weirder from here. Thank you so much for listening. Please feel free to support the show on Patreon, and you too can be just as awesome as Andrew Buchanan, Samantha Hickey, Damon Bowles, and Marco Van Putin. Feel free to leave a rating and review on iTunes or to send me an email, theweirdtalespodcast at gmail.com, or follow me on Twitter at weirdtalespod. Please, please, please go and get vaccinated if you haven't already and continue to wear a mask. Punch a racist in the face and always remember that the most important step a person can take is always the next one. Thank you so much for listening and I will see you next week.